I think there's a cat on top of the covers that's maybe chasing a cat under the... Is there a cat under the covers? No. <laughs> <laughs> what? That mound under the covers is... um. That's my laundry that I didn't want you to see, so I put a blanket over it. (laughs) You think I would judge you? Yes, you're the most judgmental person I know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, that's awful. A little bit accurate, though. (laughs) Judgment takes up two slots at the buffet. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. What is happening? This is a damn circus up in here. (laughs) My kitties? This is why they're not allowed in the recording studio, but they begged. And by recording studio, you mean laundry slash guest room? Correct. Yes. You know what could get us a recording studio? Our Patreon. Our Patreon. (laughs) Smooth. Our Patreon has officially launched. Yes. This is something people have been asking us about for a few months now, and we are equally shocked and excited that you all might want to hear more from us. Yeah. So if you find that you're just not getting enough of us, which I mean, obviously. Who could blame you? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, we're all in the same boat here. You go to our Patreon to get even more content. Tell the people what they get. Yes. I'm so excited for this announcement. Right now, we have a special tier that is just for our first 100 patrons. We're calling it our classic creepers level. And for just $5 a month, we'll be giving you two to three mini creeps a month, which will be shorter episodes where we'll talk about all sorts of things. Right now on the Patreon at this very moment, there's an episode on Daniel LaPlante that includes some exclusive information you literally will not hear anywhere else. I got a source. Insider source. We've also got one that's just like 20 minutes of us talking about the Fast and the Furious, (laughs) of course. And I already loaded up a third episode where I tell you about all sorts of crimes that happened in a Waffle House. That's basically our brand. A little bit of true crime, a little bit of Fast and Furious, a little bit of Waffle House. You get it all. (laughs) You get it all. That's a good taste of what our mini creeps will be like. You'll also get a thank you card with our autographs. Please don't sell them on eBay yet. It will also have a True Crime Creeper sticker and a one-time shout-out on the podcast. We've also got a $10 level that will get you everything in the lower levels plus 10% off of our merch. And here's something really exciting. Once we reach 100 patrons, we will start putting out an extra full-length bonus episode every month. The Classic Creepers level will close at 100 patrons. And all the perks in there, like the mini creeps, the sticker, the thank you card, all of that is going to be bumped up to a $7 level. So you want to get in early, get in there. And we're going to continue to add perks to the different tiers. Yes. So that is everything about our Patreon. Also, to celebrate our Patreon, we are running a special on our merch. We are running free shipping with the code CREEPERS. That's CREEPERS with an S. We'll run the free shipping promo until August 12th. 
I've added some new products. We've got tank tops for a couple of the different designs. I've added an accessories pouch with the Andy Warhol. Pop art. Yeah, the Andy Warhol. We can't call it that, Mogab. Oh. Copyright. The pop art Andy Warhol style creepers. And I added a zip up hoodie. So you can get all of that with free shipping with code creepers at truecrimecreepersmerch.com. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. Mogab. Yes. Today, I'm telling you about the murder of Cheryl Downs. This is a pretty giant story, pretty giant case. So this is part one of a two-parter, but I have excellent and amazing Ugh. news. What? Excellent and amazing news. If you just can't wait until next week to listen to part two. That'd be me. We've got it available for you right now over on our Patreon. That's impossible. We haven't even recorded it yet. In the f- is, but <laughs> Right now when people are listening, Mogab, don't you get how podcasting works? This is not live. <laughs> I mean, barely, honestly. <laughs> You saw that this morning. I was talking without (laughs) recording. And just to clarify, you don't need to listen to the Patreon to listen to part two. It will be our regular episode next week. Just if you don't want to wait till next week, you can join our Patreon and listen right now. What a bribe. You know, we're pulling out all the stops. (laughs) I prefer to think of it as an incentive. A treat. A little treat. A little treat. Treat yourself. All right. Major shouts for this episode are to the... And rule for her book, Small Sacrifices. Also, major shouts to our research assistant, Sabrina Eads, who made an awesome timeline of this case for me, which was really helpful while I was trying to piece all of this together. So today, I'm telling you about the murder of Cheryl Lynn Downs. This does deal with the death of children, just as a warning. (sighs) It's a sad case. And we're doing it two times in a row? Gotta do two parts? Well, it's a big case. Are you ready? Are you prepared? No. No, you know the answer to that. I'm not. All right. I'm just going to steamroll right over your mental health and let's get going. <laughs> let's get started. Okay. <gasps> great. What a great way to start a bright, sunny Sunday. All right. 
Back in 1983, the McKenzie Willamette ER in Springfield, Oregon was pretty cramped and out of date. The paint on the walls was drab, the vinyl on the waiting room furniture was peeling. Judy Patterson was the night receptionist working the evening shift on May 19, 1983. It had been mostly bumped heads and broken bones, no real emergencies that day, and things seemed to be winding down, so she was told that she could leave a few minutes before her shift was supposed to end at 10.30 that night. She was pretty happy about that. Wait, <laughs> they just leave it unattended, the emergency room? Well, her shift was supposed to end at 10.30, so, and nobody's there, you know? So, like, they're like, <laughs> no, you can I just don't head know, out. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> She was pretty happy about that because she also worked the day shift at another hospital, so it was a lot of really long days for her. So she was happy. She grabbed her purse, ready to leave. She walked towards the ambulance doors when a woman in the hall told her that there was someone outside honking their horn and yelling for help. Alarmed, Judy turned back to the nurses at the desk and told them somebody outside needed help, and then she ran right back to the doors to quickly prop them open. Rosie Martin and Shelby Day were the nurses on shift that night. And they grabbed an airway and an oxygen mask, and they rushed out the door, expecting to find someone having a heart attack. At that point, the only thing that seemed strange was that they hadn't been given a heads up by paramedics or police that an emergency was coming in. When they got outside in the emergency drive of the hospital, they saw a red car parked and a blonde woman standing next to the car. She looked pale, but in control. She wasn't crying. She wasn't hysterical. Rosie asked what was going on, and the woman said, Somebody just shot my kids. What? The words stunned Rosie and Shelby, but only for a fraction of a second, and then their emergency training kicked into gear. Rosie ducked through the passenger door of the car and grabbed the child closest to her, a little girl with brown hair. She rushed back into the hospital and yelled at Judy, call a code, it's bad. A code meant code four, which would summon all available personnel to the ER. Meanwhile, the other nurse, Shelby, saw another child in the backseat of the car, a little boy. He looked like a toddler around three years old, and he was gasping for air and crying weakly. She was about to grab the boy when she heard the doctor behind her asking what was going on. Shelby told him the kids had been shot. Dr. Mackey leaned into the car to grab the boy and spotted another child crumpled on the floor in the front of the car. There were Shut up. three of them. And based on the quick looks he'd given them, they'd all been shot in the chest. The only thing worse than a gunshot wound to the chest of a child is maybe a gunshot wound to the head. And Dr. Mackey had no idea how they were going to handle three of them. He assumed Shelby had seen the third child as well. She had not. Dr. Mackey ran into the hospital with the boy and shouted at Judy to find Dr. Wilhite. He was a thoracic surgeon. Dealing with chest wounds requires breaking the sternum reaching into the heart and lungs, and very few people have the skills required. Dr. Wilhite was one of the few in the area. They paged him, letting him know that children had been shot. Was he at the hospital, or did they page him at home? They paged him at home. Okay, hurry, I'm stressed. He managed to make the 20-minute drive from his house to the hospital oh, in eight minutes. <sighs> Back at the hospital, Shelby turned to follow Dr. Mackey, but the blonde woman that had driven the kids to the hospital urgently told Shelby there was another child on the floor area of the passenger seat. She said, Cheryl's on the floor. She hasn't moved at all. Wait, so is that the fourth kid? Or no, that this is the third, third one. Okay. And that's when Shelby realized that there was that third child. She grabbed her from the car, ran with her into the ER, fearing the worst with this one. She was complete dead weight in her arms. Okay, pause. Uh -huh. Pause. I'm flipping out. 
Who's this blonde woman? What's her name? Well, we don't know yet. She's just the blonde one. Okay, well, I don't trust her ass because I don't know how you load up three kids in a car that have been shot. I don't know how you load up three kids in a car, period. When I see people at Target with all their kids in the car, I mean, that seems... Well, for sure. And you're telling me this little blonde woman got all three of these kids injured into her car? No. That is what it looks like. (laughs) I don't know that you've ever made me this upset in the first 10 minutes. The code for was blaring out of the hospital's PA system over and over as ER personnel began pouring into the trauma room, doing what they were trained to do. It was complete luck that there just happened to be so many doctors available to help that night. It had been a slow night. And people are leaving early? Let this be a lesson. Your shift ends when your shift ends. Okay? Kia, always leaving at 1230 when the shift ends at two at the Waffle House. Your shift ends when your shift ends. Okay. Yeah, that's the same. That's the same. Yeah. (laughs) The blonde woman had followed Shelby into the trauma room and Shelby knew she shouldn't be in there. She assumed this woman was the mother and she also assumed that all three of the woman's children were probably dying in that room. Did she also assume that this woman was the murderer? That's what I'm assuming. I don't think anybody's assuming anything at this point of what happened. They're too focused on what to do about the kids. That's their first focus. She told Judy to get her out of there, and she left. Dr. Mackey looked at the child Shelby had just brought in, little Cheryl. He tried to intubate her, but he only got blood. He lifted her and found two bullet holes in her back. He checked the heart monitor and shook his head. There wasn't anything that they could do for her. She was already dead when Shelby carried her in. The other two weren't in much better condition. They were barely alive. The little blonde boy was barely able to breathe, and the other girl wasn't moving. She had three bullet wounds, two in the chest, and one through her left hand. And her body was in the beginning processes of dying. She had no blood pressure, and she wasn't breathing. But her pupils were still reacting to light. It wasn't over for her. But then her heart stopped beating. What's her name? Her name is Christy. We will meet them. Okay. But just then, Dr. Wilhite arrived, and I picture this like an angel dressed in a lab coat kicking in the doors to the trauma unit. He worked on her, and like a miracle, her heartbeat came back. Her pupils were reacting, and she had blood pressure. But she wasn't out of the woods. It would be another hour before they'd get her stable enough to take her to surgery. Dr. Mackey continued to work on the little boy. He looked terrified, and his heart was racing at 150 beats per minute. He couldn't draw a good breath. Dr. Mackey was able to clear his lungs, and as soon as he could breathe easily, he started to sob. He was out of immediate danger, but the bullet was really close to his spinal cord, and those injuries are unpredictable. He might be perfectly fine, or he might not ever walk again. Meanwhile, Judy Patterson was in the waiting room with the young blonde woman who'd brought them all in trying to figure out what had happened. The woman said that her name was Elizabeth Downs, but she went by her middle name, Diane. The kids were all hers. The oldest girl was Christy Ann, who was eight. The little boy was Danny, and he was three. And then there was seven-year-old Cheryl Lynn. Diane seemed to be in a state of shock. Her affect was flat, she was not showing any emotion, and she was insisting that there was a man out there with a gun that had done this to her children. Oh, Buzz off, Diane. Judy assumed it was a domestic dispute, and she thought anyone crazy enough to shoot three little kids might follow them to the ER and shoot everyone there. So she called the police, relaying all the information that Diane had given her. 
Diane said she didn't know where the shooting happened, but she was pretty sure she could find it again. She said they'd gone out to see her friend Heather, who'd been looking for a horse to buy, and Diane had driven out to her house to take her an article about horses that could be adopted for free because Heather didn't have a phone. They only stayed 15 to 20 minutes and then headed home. She said she and the kids were laughing and talking, and she was laughing at something Danny said when she saw a man standing in the middle of the road looking like he needed help. She stopped the car and got out, and the man demanded her car keys. She said he just reached in through the window and shot the kids. She said, it's a terrible thing to be laughing one minute and then to have something like that happen to you. My face is scrunching so hard I've already got a headache. (laughs) Yeah, you probably do have the worst case of scrunch face I've ever seen. (laughs) Oh my God, like, my face is going to get stuck like this. Did they look in the car like... There's a difference of putting a shot body in a car than shooting a body in the car. That scene looks different. And I've only been here for like five minutes, you know? Like, I'm new to this game. The kids were all shot in the car. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. So that answers my question of them getting in the car then. They got in the car fine. Yes. They were fine when they got in the car. Judy then saw that underneath Diane's plaid shirt, her left arm was wrapped in a beach towel from elbow to wrist. Judy unwrapped the towel and found a nasty-looking wound. When Diane went to call her father, Judy heard her say, He shot the kids. He shot me, too. Her parents arrived soon, and they were all in shock at how this could have happened. Her ex-husband and the kid's father, Steve Downs, was also notified. He lived in Arizona, but he immediately set out for Oregon. Diane had recently moved from Arizona to Oregon just a couple of months before to be closer to her parents. She was 27 years old when all of this happened. 27 years old with three kids? Mm-hmm. I know. Could you imagine? No. I mean, I know that's like normal, but. Is it? Is it normal? I don't. Most 27-year-olds I know, like, we're just getting off of their parents' health insurance, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Bless. <laughs> When the police arrived at the hospital eight minutes after the call, Diane told them a similar story. She said after she'd left her friend Heather's, she'd decided impulsively to take a detour and do a little sightseeing. To Judy, she'd said that they'd all been laughing at some big joke. But here to police, she told them that the kids had all fallen asleep. She said when she realized the kids were all asleep, she'd turned around to head back to Springfield. A stranger had demanded her car and then shot her children when she refused to give it to him. But she said, I wasn't just going to let him have my new car. I just bought it. Mm, Okay. She said the man in the road was a white guy in his late 20s, around 5'9", 150 to 170 pounds. She said he had dark hair, a shag wavy cut, and a stubble of beard, like a day or two's growth. And that he'd been wearing Levi's, a Levi jacket, and a dirty t-shirt. He'd been right in the center of the road. And Diane stopped, got out of the car, said, what's your problem? The man told her he wanted the car, and she said, you've got to be kidding me. And then he shoved her back in the car, and then he just started shooting the kids. The cops asked her what she did, and she said she pretended to throw her car keys, which made the man mad. He shot her in the arm. She kicked him in the leg, jumped back in the car, and took off for the hospital. The police needed confirmation that the road she said this happened on, Old Mohawk Road, was actually the right road before they put any investigation into place. So they asked her to come with them and point out the crime scene. Even though she she shot? Yes. And I, 
I'm very surprised that she has a bullet wound in her arm and they're asking her to go on a field trip without providing her any medical attention. Like, you know, I mean, it's the 80s. Anything goes, you know, that's true. Yeah. And it's the early 80s. I mean, we're coming. We It's practically the 70s. Yeah. (laughs) So she rode out to Old Mohawk Road with the officers and confirmed that that was the right spot. She even pointed out where Christy stopped choking as they drove over a bridge. (gasps) While on the drive, she said, I never should have bought that unicorn. What? (laughs) She said it under her breath like she was speaking to herself. And then she explained that several days before, she'd bought the kids this beautiful brass unicorn with their names engraved on it as a symbol of their new life. And now she doesn't think that she should have bought it. Police were pretty confused about this whole unicorn thing, but it didn't seem super relevant at the time. Yes, same. (laughs) They dropped it. Oh. While out at the crime scene, Diane told police that she suddenly remembered seeing an icky yellow car parked somewhere along the road, but that the car was gone now. After a while, she said her arm was starting to throb. So the police arranged for someone to come out to the scene to take her back to the hospital while they set up roadblocks. (laughs) One of the cops that came to pick her up is named Dick Tracy, and I just needed that to be known. (laughs) (gasps) Shut up. (laughs) That's amazing. Do you think his last name is Tracy? And then he was just like, well, now I'm- I got to go by Dick. Right. His first name's like Craig, and he's like, well, (laughs) I'm a cop now, so. (laughs) It's very possible. It's very possible. Mm -hmm. And I also, I feel like you have a lot of options. If your name is Richard, like if his name was actually Richard- Like, you have a Mm -hmm. lot of options on nicknames, you know? We can go with Rich, you know? Like, Richie Rich. Rick. Rick is a great one, you know? A a little Rick action. I'm going to go with Dick, (laughs) because you got to lean into it and call yourself that before everyone else does. You got to own it. Like Fat Amy? Right. (laughs) Yeah. When Diane returned to the hospital, it was close to midnight. Dr. Mackey heard she was back, and he came out to give her the terrible news that seven-year-old Cheryl Lynn had been dead on arrival. Why do I feel like Diane isn't that upset about Well, police watched her expression when she heard the news because they were trying to gauge that same thing, but she was impossible to read. Eventually, her face settled into an expression they described as stoic. Dr. Mackey told Diane that Christy was critical and in surgery, but that they were cautiously optimistic about Danny. He described where the bullet had landed on Danny, and Diane said, you mean it missed his heart? They heard her say many other inappropriate comments, like how this whole thing really ruined her new car because of all the blood in the back. <gasps> oh. Yeah. Is this stoic? Is this face one that you would call stoic? <laughs> no. I would call that face absolutely disgusted. <laughs> I'd, uh... At some point, she also tells the doctor that she knows Christy is brain dead, and she says she wants them to pull the plug. <gasps> the doctor tells her they do not know that and that he will not do that. And he's pretty freaked out by that whole exchange. So this doctor actually went to a judge to get himself appointed as Christy's guardian so that she (gasps) couldn't make those kinds of medical decisions for Christy. Wait, like, whoa, hold on. This doctor just like in the moments like, no, I'm going to be this kid's guardian. Yeah, like as an emergency placement so that she can like not pull the plug on her. That's amazing. Since she's not brain dead. Yeah. That's my Peeps Award from the Peeps Increase. <laughs> You'll want to give out a few of them, I think, by the end of part two. <laughs> There's at least one other one that you'll probably be like cheering for. 
Well, it's, uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you it's not going to you because I could have done without this story. <laughs> You're welcome. You should thank all the peeps that requested this story, okay? Who's requesting this? I did not choose this. I had many, many, many requests. Who's requesting so, this? Answer for your crimes. You better slide in my DMs. Those of you that requested this, you're welcome. Also, sorry, I didn't write I didn't write your name down, so I can't actually thank Answer you. Answer for your crimes. I need you to slide <laughs> in my DMs and tell me why I'm sitting here right now. Why you thought this would be fun. <laughs> Later, the cops continued to question Diane. They said she didn't smell like alcohol, her pupils looked normal, and later, blood tests would confirm that she was sober. But she would not stop talking. They said it was like word vomit. They just kept coming. Finally, Dick Tracy told her that she had an amazing amount of recall and she must be fairly intelligent. And Diane said, I'm assuming there was a massive hair flip involved in this. Probably, but it didn't look as good as your new hair. Yeah, thank (laughs) y'all. I like the pink. Thank you, thank you. Diane said, there are eight levels of intelligence and I'm at the seventh level. And she didn't want to give herself too much credit, you know? Right, right. She's like, I'm there. We've been watching the Olympics, you know? And Mm -hmm. what's it like to win a silver medal? Like, you're better than 7 billion other people in the world at this one thing, except for one. Right. There's just one other person better than you. It feels like Michaela, that meme, Michaela, what's her name? No. Michaela the gymnast, when she won the silver. Is she the one that's like making the face? Yes. She's pissed. Yes. I know her name. (laughs) Michaela Maroney. <laughs> Let me see the photo again. <laughs> <Can you> see <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing right now. Not impressed. Diane. So Diane says there's eight levels of intelligence. She's at the seventh level. This seemed like a weird response, but she was also like a robot in the way that she responded to questions. They swabbed her hands to see if there was the presence of trace metals on them that might have been left if she'd fired a gun which they say is more accurate than a gunshot residue test, which can actually show a false positive, like if you've peed, if you've smoked a cigarette, if you've used toilet paper. Wait, those have the same things as gunpowder? Yeah, it can come off as, yeah, as positive for gunshot residue. So understand that if you ever take a gunshot residue test, if you're ever accused of shooting somebody. Yeah, especially me. I'm having to go to the bathroom every two seconds. Exactly. You will Especially when I'm nervous. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when you're nervous, you got to go pee and then you take the test and then you're nervous. And then, mm-mm. Yep. But her hands were negative for everything. Hmm. She told police the only weapon she owned was a 22 rifle that she kept in her closet. And she gave police permission to search her car and the duplex that she was renting in Springfield. But as she gave permission, telling them that she'd do whatever they needed, they noticed her speech seemed a bit forced, like she was hiding something or afraid of something. Oh, am I about to be wrong? Because if I am, we're going to have to re-record this whole thing. Because <laughs> I really went hard on time. The detectives began to wonder if the killer was known to or connected to Diane in some way. They developed an initial theory that perhaps the gunman only released Diane to get medical care for the kids and threatened more violence if she told the police anything. Mm-hmm. So detectives Tracy and Welch, that's Dick Tracy for those... Keeping up. Oh, yes. We won't forget. (laughs) They spoke with Diane's parents, and her parents told them that Diane had that gun because her ex husband used to beat her. Tracy asked Diane, that's Dick Tracy for (laughs) that. Tracy asked Diane if she owned any other weapons other than the rifle, and she suddenly remembered that she had a 38 pistol locked in the trunk of her car. 
And nunchucks in the desk drawer. (laughs) And nunchucks in her desk drawer. No nunchucks make an appearance in this story. Dang it. This was a cheap gun and it was unpredictable. Doctors told Diane that her arm was broken and she'd need surgery in a week or so to strengthen it and that she'd need to stay in the hospital for at least a few days, but she did not want to stay. She made the doctor promise not to tell her dad about the rose tattoo that she had on her back with the name (gasps) Nick under it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. This doctor also noticed how flat Diane was emotionally and how her words were so rapid and alive while her eyes were so dead. Police went out to interview Diane's friend Heather, who confirmed that Diane had come to visit her earlier around 8.30 or 9, and she'd had the three kids with her. Oh, I didn't think Heather was real. (laughs) She said Diane had come with the ad in the paper to adopt a horse, but Heather said she'd just bought a horse and she didn't want another one. And this whole story always stuck out to me as so manic. Like, Diane sees an ad in a paper that reminds her of Heather, and she can't get a hold of her by phone, and it's 1983, so she piles her three kids in the car to drive the 30 minutes to her house at 8 o'clock at night to give her an ad that it turns out Heather didn't even really need. Anne could have definitely waited till the morning. Absolutely. And she just recently moved to the area, so she couldn't have been that good of friends with Heather. They were coworkers. That's how they knew each other. Mm -hmm. Detectives then went to search Diane's apartment, and when they got there, it looked empty, like someone had just moved in a day or so before, not a couple of months. There was no furniture in the living room except a chair and a TV. The kitchen utensils were still packed away. And in the fridge, there were only a few cans. All of them were open and moldy. Yeah. Well, who's putting cans in the fridge? The only cans I put in the fridge are like cat food cans that I haven't finished yet. I mean, not me. The cats. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. There were four photographs framed in the apartment. Two were of Diane by herself and two of a dark bearded man. None of the kids. Are they like glamour shots of Diane? I'm hoping. They must have like been, right? Like glamour shots. Yes. Did you ever have any? <laughs> I might as well just post it to the Instagram right now. Are you kidding? Oh, my God. Look at you, little Samantha Mogan. Look at her hair. It's full of secrets. It's full of secrets. You are banging away over there on that mic. Oh, well, I just set my phone down for but a also, glamour shot. And I just banging just- away on this glamour shot. <laughs> Bang it. Slay all day. Oh my day. God. Look at that hair. Look at that sequence. Go ahead and save that, that so you can post forest it later. forest green. I am saving that image. Yes. You will want to follow us on the IG, all the peeps <laughs> and creeps out there. Go ahead and just hit that follow button so you can see this amazing glamour shot picture. I mean, check out the eyebrow game. Strong. Look, your eyebrows have always been on point, but that is impressive for this time period because this is when they were like trying to pencil out our eyebrows. Also, I've heard that's back, the pencil eyebrows. And I just want to put a message out there to all the young people. No, let me do it. Are you doing it? I feel like this is my moment. Do it. Yeah. Okay. And don't you dare cut this. PSA. Listen here, youths. Do not (laughs) shave off your eyebrows and pencil them in. That is the biggest mistake you will make in your life. Also, though, don't pluck them into obscurity because the hair will not grow back and you will be really upset about it in about three to five years. It's not going to be that long. Pencil thin. Take it from the chuggy people here. (laughs) That word does not exist. 
It does. Stop though. trying to make fetch happen. It's not going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> it is. Russell calls me the chuggy monster sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you technically are the definition of chuggy. If there was a definition, you would be the poster child. But it, you know, me? it's fine. Yes. Yeah. Obviously. And then I tried to like, this is the most embarrassing thing. I tried to argue it and they started listing things and they were like monograms, everything, which I don't have that much stuff. But as they said it, I was, <laughs> I was like, what? Really? <laughs> you know, out of my monogram jug. Mogab, you literally thought about your future last name based on how good it looks as a monogram. Oh, yeah. I'm only going to marry someone with an M or a W. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Can't be messing up that symmetry, please. That's monograms and eyebrows, so don't touch them. You want to tell me again how you're not chuggy? <laughs> <laughs> Telling you, calls me the chuggy monster. <laughs> like the cookie monster, Look. but worse. Embrace it. Have you heard Bo Burnham's White Woman's Instagram? No. I don't know who that is, do I? I feel like I know that name. He's a comedian. He did the Jeff Bezos song. Mm. CEO entrepreneur, born in 1964, Jeffrey. <laughs> Jeffrey <What>? Bezos. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is amazing. But then he also does White Woman's Instagram. Maybe I need to look that up. And I want to know, I want you to watch the video, not just listen to the song. Okay. I want you to watch the video because he does all of the pictures like that you would see on a white woman's Instagram. And I okay. feel like you definitely have some. Hold on. Hey, babe. Yeah. Do you really think I'm chuggy? Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I really hope the mic picked that up. <laughs> I know. How do we tell? Oh, yeah, definitely. The word chuggy. Much like the word Karen is just another way for women to be rude about other women. So yeah. can we just all stop? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> ADH. Anyways. All right. Well, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, that was great. All right. So this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day -day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. The detectives are in the apartment. 
There's only four photographs, and they're none of the kids. They're Diane's glamour shots and some dark bearded man. That the glamour shots, how I got off. Yes. <laughs> the detective saw the unicorn statue that she'd talked about. It was like nine inches oh, tall. Yes. <laughs> it was like nine inches tall. It had an engraved plate that said, Christy, Cheryl, and Danny. I love you, mom. May 13th, <gasps> 1983. Wait. That sounds a little less like a statue and a little more like a tombstone. Like a little memorial. I agree. They also found the rifle that she told them about exactly where she said it would be. And they could tell that it was loaded, but that it had not been fired recently. They took the bullets out and collected them as evidence. And they also found a diary that looked like it was written as a series of letters to someone named Nick. Which is the same Nick that's tattooed on her butt? No. Her back. On her Oh, I like butt better. Yeah, that would be better. I want to be a detective because I would thrive reading other people's diaries. No, oh, 100%. If that's like all I could do, if I was the diary specialist mm-hmm. on the police force. We found another diary. Get MoGab on the line. <laughs> <laughs> it's her time to shine. That's right. They also found a calendar filled with red X's. And it would turn out that those red X's all signified something important to Diane. Dates of romantic encounters, birth dates, even dates that she conceived her children. More on that later. On May 19th, the same day she and her children were shot, there was a huge red X, which signified the first time that she'd ever been intimate with this Nick person. Who is Nick? We will get into him in maybe... We better in this episode, not part two. sentences. Okay. The morning after her children were shot, Diane made a phone call from her hospital bed to the post office that she'd worked for in Arizona. Her friend Karen answered the phone and Diane blurted out, somebody shot my kids. Cheryl's dead. I'm shot too. Karen couldn't believe it and she just started crying. But someone else was listening to the conversation. Robert Knickerbocker was standing right behind Karen. His face kind of turned away. Diane had been calling him every morning at 7 a.m. for weeks, when suddenly he just stopped accepting her calls, he stamped return to sender on all of her letters and packages, and he'd given explicit instructions to everyone at the post office that he would not talk to Diane. Stop. One, Nick works at the post office. Mm Mm-hmm. Two, he goes by Nick because his last name is Knickerbocker. Yes. Or is he really Nick Knickerbocker? Robert Nick Knickerbocker. But like Robert Nick is, Nick is his middle name. And in the book, she used pseudonyms and she called him Lou Lewiston. <laughs> but Karen thought that this was a call he should take. And she begged Nick to talk to Diane and he finally agreed to take the phone. When she spoke, she sounded normal. She asked him how it was going. How's everything going? How are you doing? She said, it's not going good. She said, are you happy, babe? (laughs) Nick wanted to get off the phone. So he asked her what was was going on and why is Karen crying? And she finally told him. She said she didn't know what happened. And she gave him the same story of the guy in the middle of the road who wanted her car. Nick told her that he'd take down the hospital phone number, but that if she was planning on coming back to Arizona any time at all to not come see him. She told him she loved him. And he said he had to get back to work. When he hung up, he said he just didn't know what to think. More on Nick Knickerbocker later. No, more on him now, please. The DA assigned to the shooting was named Fred (laughs) Hughie. Like (laughs) Chugie? Like Chugie without the C. 
He wasn't particularly happy to be assigned this case, but when he went to the hospital and he stood at the foot of eight-year-old Christie's bed, they made eye contact and something happened. Fred suddenly became incredibly protective of Christie and Danny, and he vowed to avenge them. He sat next to their hospital. Wait, couldn't they just tell what happened? Couldn't Christy just tell the cops what happened? Mm-hmm. But she... She gonna? Mogam, I'm gonna need Sorry. you to hold on to your leggings and stop moving ahead. <sighs> okay. He sat next to their hospital beds in the ICU for a long time, feeling like maybe if he sat there long enough, they'd live. Steve Downs, the children's father, arrived from Arizona on the 20th, ashen-faced and shaken. So a little bit of background on Steve and Diane. They were high school sweethearts, and Diane was only 18 when she and Steve got married. Diane had been molested by her father when she was 12, and I think she was looking for a way out of her parents' house. Marrying Steve did that. By all accounts, their marriage wasn't great. Steve cheated on her, he was irresponsible, he was immature, and in fact, two weeks after their wedding, Steve told Diane that he had a date with another girl that he'd made, like he'd set the date like a month before, like before they got married, and he felt like he should still honor it. He should still keep the date. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you gotta be polite, you know? Exactly. He asked Diane to press his pants for the date. (gasps) Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And she did. Diane thought having a child would fix the problems in their relationship. Oh. Yeah, spoiler alert, that never works. And they quickly had their daughter, Christy. Two years later, they had Cheryl. But lo and behold, things did not improve. So they had a third. Diane would disappear with the kids for long periods of time, and things between her and Steve were tumultuous. Cheryl was a really tough baby, and when Diane got pregnant again, she decided she couldn't take it if it was another baby like Cheryl, and she ended up having an abortion. Diane and Steve decided that he would get a vasectomy, but later she really regretted that decision. The abortion had really affected her. She'd named the fetus Carrie, and she decided she needed to get pregnant again so Carrie could come to life. She asked Steve to reverse his vasectomy, but he wouldn't. So she said, fine, I'll get a donor. So she had an affair with some guy to get pregnant. She actually later told a psychologist that she'd picked five ugly young men to seduce in order to have a child with one of them. But she never told that story that way to anyone else but that psychologist. And the Washington Post reported that she'd gone to a friend, Mark Sager, to get pregnant. Whatever she really did worked, and she had Danny whose full name is Stephen Daniel. So I feel like that was just another slap in the face naming Danny after Mm -hmm. Steve. (laughs) But Steve Mm -hmm. adored Danny, and it seemed he might have been willing to forgive, forget, and accept Danny as his own. But they ended up divorcing in 1980 when Danny was only a year old. And it was in 1980 that Diane first heard about surrogate parenting. She really loved being pregnant, and different people say different things about how she felt after the babies were born, whether she was indifferent or really loved them. She definitely wanted them to love her. Either way, Diane decided she wanted to be a surrogate. She had to go through some psychological tests before she could do it. And on the IQ test, she placed high in the superior range of intelligence. So she was actually really smart. (laughs) Like she said, you know, seventh level of intelligence. Yeah, she did tell us that. 
But she did poorly in areas where she had to demonstrate social cause and effect reasoning, attention span, and concept formation. The report said those findings were indicative of a major psychopathology, but it alone couldn't be used to diagnose her. Her tests also showed that her ego was almost non-existent. She did not believe that she was very good or very important. They also showed that she had a poor ability to express anger and she tended to have poor behavior controls. But her results altogether were inconclusive. They showed significant psychological problems, but the examiners couldn't pinpoint what exactly those problems were. So they said she was just unique. A special snowflake. A special snowflake. The report stated, despite a somewhat flamboyant facade, this woman tends to be shy, timid, and retiring. Later, multiple doctors would say that she had signs of histrionic personality disorder, which is a diagnosis assigned to individuals who display patterns of attention-seeking, often dramatic behavior to gain the approval of others. This behavior may be flirtatious, emotional, seductive, or anything else that would get people's attention. Eventually, and shockingly, she did get approved to be a surrogate, and she was paid $10,000 for surrogating, I kind of just made up that word, but for a couple, <laughs> which is almost, Caring, maybe? <laughs> yeah, which is almost $30,000 today. And she also got free lodging, transportation, and medical care. But she loved being pregnant, but it seems like she didn't love it so much when the babies were outside the body. Now, people in Diane's camp, her supporters, they say that her friends and family all said that she was a very loving mother. But in Anne Rule's book, she found quite a lot of people that said the opposite. There was Mac Richmond, for example. He was a guy she dated after her divorce. They worked together at the post office, and he said that her kids seemed like a pain in the ass to her. They weren't even allowed in the living room, and she'd call them demeaning names. Getting Belle Gunnis vibes. Yeah. Her neighbor, Mary Ward, had similar things to say about Diane. Diane worked the early shift, delivering mail like 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. Danny went to daycare. Christy was in school all day. But Cheryl was in morning kindergarten. And when she got home at 1130, she'd be alone, either sitting on the porch waiting to be let in or wandering off to see if a neighbor would let her use the bathroom. Diane figured Cheryl was okay because she was delivering mail in the same general area. But it's 1981, so it's not like she was reachable. Right. And I mean, kindergarten? Yes. Like, like six years old. Yeah. That's five or six. Like, that's not like, I don't know. I think there's a big difference in five and six and like eight and nine, nine and ten. Yes, definitely. And she doesn't have a key. She's sitting outside the house. She can't even go to the bathroom. Yeah, like, give a girl a key. But they're not allowed in the living room, so I guess she wouldn't, like, give her a key. Eventually, Mary Ward, who lived a few doors down, noticed, and she would take Cheryl in every day. When Mary finally confronted Diane about the whole situation in a letter, Diane was enraged. She took Cheryl and marched her over to Mary's house, telling her that she stopped to check in on Cheryl while she delivered her mail, and that Cheryl wasn't neglected. And then Mary said Diane turned to Cheryl and told her, you're such a bad little girl. If you don't obey mommy, you deserve to be killed. <gasps> yeah. <sighs> Mary said Cheryl was the most depressed little girl she'd ever seen, and that once she'd jumped in front of her husband's car. When Mary asked why she'd done that, she said, it doesn't matter. Nobody cares. <sighs> I care. 
I know, we care, little Cheryl. Diane, on the other hand, said that they were having a marvelous time at that time. She carried them, hugged them, took them out for pizza. It seems she has a very skewed memory of her time with the kids, like they were one big happy family. Well, I just met Diane, and I don't buy that, that that everyone's having a good time. No, but I might buy that she remembers it that way, you know? They might have had this one good day where, like, she took them out for pizza, and they were all laughing and having a great time, and that's all she remembers. She doesn't remember little Cheryl sitting outside of her house, not being paid attention to, like, all the kids being neglected there all day, the rest of the days. She just remembers that time she took them out for pizza. Right. She called them together the Four Musketeers. It was them against the world. But meanwhile, Cheryl's over here getting nosebleeds from malnutrition. Danny is getting strep infections because he keeps playing outside with no coat in the winter. And Christy is making them all peanut butter sandwiches so that they can eat on days that Diane doesn't take them out for fast food. (laughs) And throughout this whole time, Diane is on the prowl for married men. She started having affair after affair and only seemed to be attracted to men that were married. Why? And also all while she was pregnant for the surrogacy. And one of those men was Nick Knickerbocker. So detectives talked with Steve and got some of this information, but what they were most interested in was what Steve had to say about Nick. Steve said Diane had fallen hard for Nick, who was married, and Steve said he felt like Nick led Diane on. They'd had an on-again, off-again relationship for the previous six months. She'd even flown down to see him a while back and told Steve that they'd worked out all of their problems. Steve said Diane stayed with him while she was in town. Steve also told police that Diane had a 22 rifle and the 38 revolver, which they knew about, but he told them she also had a 22 pistol that she hadn't told them about. The kids were shot with a 22 pistol. And Diane had failed to tell them about that weapon. Steve also confirmed that she knew how to use the gun. Meanwhile, Danny was hanging in there. His condition was still critical, but he was stable. Christy had literally come back from the dead, and everyone was ecstatic over her condition. But then it seemed like she had a stroke on the left side of her brain, and no one knew what that meant for her recovery. Diane came to visit Christy for the first time since she'd been taken into the trauma room at the ER. But it wasn't the tearful reunion everyone expected. The second she walked in, Christy's heart rate jumped from 80 beats a minute to 104. And when Diane took her hand and kept telling her over and over that she loved her, Christy's eyes looked like they were full of fear and her heart rate jumped up to 147 beats. (gasps) It took a long time for it to go back down after Diane left. And... This is like a little disclaimer about that story. That whole story comes from Paul Alton, one of the DA's investigators, and it's disputed by Diane's supporters who say that Christie's heart rate could have jumped out of excitement. And they also say that it's repeatedly in the nurse's notes that the kids frequently asked for their mom and that they enjoyed when she visited. So they say that this whole story, take it for what it's worth. I am. I am taking it for what it is worth. Yes. Fred Hugie, the DA, he started keeping vigil in the kids' hospital room, and on Saturday, two days after the shooting, Diane's parents came to see the kids. Fred didn't recognize them because they hadn't been there to visit yet, and so he stood up to block them from coming in the room until they explained that they were the kids' grandparents. 
Fred said they didn't stay very long, and they seemed to be in a pretty cheerful mood. He also noticed that they were wearing name tags, and so he asked them about it. They said they'd just come from a service club's fun run, saying they had to supervise. Quote, you know how social obligations are. You can't break them. Even if all your grandkids have been shot and one died? Apparently, even if, Fred was dumbfounded. Later that same day, police talked to Diane in her hospital room. Diane at first is hesitant when she sees they're recording the conversation, but she ends up allowing them to record. She once again gives the story in detail. Her speech is rapid fire as usual. Another indication of a manic episode, by the way. And the detectives have trouble getting a question in edgewise. Police start to notice minor discrepancies in her story, like how she said the kids were laughing and awake. And she even said, you know, it's so horrible when you're laughing one minute and then this terrible thing happens to you the next. But then she changed her story to the kids were asleep. She also first told Judy Patterson that the man had leaned in the window to shoot the kids, but she later told police that he stuck his arm inside the car while he stood outside. Sometimes the killer was standing in the road. Sometimes he was jogging up to her car. They also started questioning the story in general, which just didn't make any sense. Like, why would they be sightseeing so late at night when you can't see anything? Or if the man had targeted Diane, how did he know she'd be on that street? And if it was a random person trying to steal a car, why wouldn't he shoot Diane, who was the biggest threat between him and getting what he wanted? And how did he know to shoot Cheryl, who was on the floorboard of the passenger seat under a sweater and just looked like a pile of clothes? Even the nurses didn't realize she was there at well, I don't first. think she was there. Like, I thought she was there after she'd been shot. Why would she be riding in the floorboard under a sweater? Because she was sleeping. Oh, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I have all those same questions. Yeah. And how did he manage to shoot her twice? They were really starting to doubt Diane's story because it just didn't make any sense. But they were trying to look at it from every angle. They even considered maybe it was a hit that somebody wanted the entire family dead. But that theory also had holes. In fact, every theory had holes. If Diane had been the one to shoot her children, why would she then drive to the hospital to get help? Anne Rule even mentions in her book that the bushy-haired stranger, or BHS, is a piece of forensic <laughs> folklore. Someone there to displace blame from the true guilty person who can play the part of an innocent victim. They were just at the wrong place, at the wrong time. The BHS often holds key information to a case, but can never be produced in court or produced at all. Fred Hughie said if they ever do find the BHS, they'll just have to open the doors of prison to let all the innocent people out, which would be excellent sarcasm if there weren't actually thousands of innocent people in prison. Correct. Yes. <laughs> the DA and several police already have begun to suspect Diane, but they lacked a clear motive. Why would a mother of three want to murder her own children? It was absolutely outside the realm of possible understanding. You know, Is mothers it? just don't do that. I don't know. She <laughs> seems over them. She seems pretty sus, if you ask me. Is that you trying to be more with the youths? <laughs> no, I think she's suspicious as hell. <laughs> there were several different things that had begun to ring off alarm bells to police also. In their notes, after they'd first responded to the call at the hospital, it says that Diane acted like she lost her parakeet. <laughs> <laughs> that was in the notes. <laughs> 
Uh... There was also the story from Steve about Diane owning a 22 pistol. You know, she has three guns and she tells them about all of them except the one that matches the murder weapon. Yeah, I mean, that seems weird. Yeah, police figured that that probably was the murder weapon, but they needed the gun to be sure and it hadn't turned up anywhere. They'd put in hundreds of man hours looking for it to no avail. Without the murder weapon, they had absolutely nothing on her. The only reliable witness of the crime besides Diane was Christy, whose condition was not improving after the stroke. It seemed like she'd lost the ability to speak, at least temporarily, and she couldn't use the right side of her body. Luckily, she was left-handed, but she had a bullet hole in that hand that was still healing, so she couldn't even write out what she had seen. So eyewitnesses were out for now. What they needed was more information about Diane. So on May 25th, Fred Hughie sent two detectives, Doug Welch and Paul Alton, down to Chandler, Arizona, to interview Nick Knickerbocker and see what else they could learn about Diane. Fred told them, go down there and see if you can find out who Diane Downs really is. Wait, I'm confused. He's in Uh Arizona too? Nick is in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And where is she right now? She has moved to Oregon. She moved there like a couple weeks ago before this incident to be closer to her parents. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what they were expecting to get out of that trip, but it couldn't be what they got, which was the motive handed to them on a silver platter. Oh, yes. I'm here for this. Serve me up. (laughs) Doug and Paul planned to be down in Chandler for three or four days, but every person they talked to sent them to three or four more people, and they ended up staying for nine days. The first person they talked to was Nick, and they weren't just going there to talk to Nick about Diane. They were also going to either confirm or eliminate him as a suspect. So his affair is definitely out. Like, his wife knows at this point. Yes. Because when they got there, Nick said he wanted his wife, Nora, to sit in on the interview. And detectives were concerned that he wouldn't be able to be completely honest. But Nick said that Nora knew everything. And side note, Nora is what she was called in the book, which used a pseudonym for Nick. So I'm not sure if Nora is her real name, but it's not super important. So we're going to call her Nora. I had to look it up because Nick and Nora, it's like, you know, there's like Nick Mm -hmm. and Nora's playlist and, you know. Anyway, both Nick and Nora turned out to be very open and candid in this interview. Nick told detectives that a few months into the affair with Diane, he realized that she was more serious about the relationship than he'd intended. He'd watched her run through men, getting tired of them after a short time, and he figured that's how it would be when she got to him. But it was not. (laughs) Diane decided he was the one she wanted, and she was determined to marry him. And get a tattoo, and that's forever. Even when the marriage is over. Right. The fact that he was already married didn't seem to be a big problem for her, and she seemed not to notice when he would tell her that he had no intention of leaving his wife. (laughs) Nick had also made it clear he was not interested in being a father, but she said she'd just have to find a way that the kids wouldn't bother him. Mm. And then the plan came to her. She was going to do another surrogacy, get another $10,000, and use it to build a house big enough to keep her kids at one end of the house with a nanny and her and Nick at the other end of the house. That was her big plan. That dedication is, like, unreal. Yeah, and I'm not sure if she realizes, like, how much house you can get for (laughs) $10,000, even in the 80s. Yeah. Like, girl. In any case, Nick was not interested in that plan, but Diane didn't seem to notice or care. And then Nora... (gasps) Oh, this bitch. (laughs) 
don't want to get ahead of myself. Go ahead. (laughs) And then Nora started having symptoms of an STI, and she confronts Nick about it, who breaks down and ends up confessing everything to her. They both received treatment. Nora forgave him, and he ended the affair with Diane. The detectives think Diane intentionally passed on the STI to Nick so that he would confess to Nora about the affair, assuming that Nora would leave him when she found out. But she didn't. Detectives came back for a second interview with Nick and Nora, and in that interview, they found out more about Diane's obsession with Nick. She'd gotten the rose with his name tattooed on her shoulder, telling him it was a symbol of their pure love, but it made Nick super uncomfy. They also found out that Diane had confessed to Nick that she and Steve had started a fire in her trailer so she could collect on the insurance, and Steve had agreed to repair the damage caused by the fire. They'd planned to burn the whole thing down to get more money, but Steve left one of the doors shut and the fire couldn't spread. Arson investigators had determined the fire had been caused by an electrical short, so she was never found out. Hmm. By the time detectives went back to Oregon, they were pretty sure they'd worked out what happened. Diane Downs had become so obsessed with being with Nick, and Nick had made it clear he didn't want children. She'd convinced herself that the kids were the only thing getting in the way of her and Nick being together, and so she decided to kill them. That was my conclusion as well, when I gasped earlier. (laughs) But they couldn't prove it. And that is the end of part one. Shut up. Of the murder of Cheryl Lynn Downs. Okay, and everything else, all the other crimes (laughs) under that umbrella. Yes, I didn't know what to title it. I mean, you can only use so many characters, you know? Yeah, but it's more like the murder, Cheryl, and then it's like the the attempted murder of of Christy and Danny, and then the- Ruining Nick's life, life, probably, too. And then then setting fire to her trailer, and- (sighs) That's where you're leaving me on this? That's all. That's a wrap. I can't believe that's where it's ending, though. That was a good one. But guess what, though? Do you know that the people listening to this episode, they could hear part two quicker than you because you're going to have until tomorrow, but they can go right now on Patreon, sign up for our Patreon. Part two is there loaded, ready for you at any level. I really do need part two, though. (laughs) (laughs) If you also need part two, go to patreon.com slash true crime creepers. The link is in our show notes and on our Instagram and on our Facebook. And everywhere. And everywhere you could. And uh, I'll make Mogab put a pinned tweet about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And um, we'll send it by Carrier Pigeon. <laughs> hey, peeps and creeps. Thank you so much for listening and for following us on social media. If you haven't already, we are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at Creepers Pod. You can also join our Facebook discussion group and, of course, join our Patreon, which is live now. And you can also email us any feedback, case suggestions at creeperspod at gmail.com. Also, a huge thanks to everyone who's left us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else. They help us out in such a big way. If you liked this episode and you have an iPhone, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget, we have our free shipping promo running right now until August 12th. 12th? Until August 12th. And that is at truecrimecreepersmerch.com, promo code CREEPERS. 
And be sure to subscribe to True Crime Creepers so you'll have our next episode as soon as it drops when I'll tell Moga part two of this wild story. Or just go to Patreon and listen to it right now. Ah! Bye, peeps and creeps. Bye.